Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and, to, and today I'm joined by Dr. Joseph Enrich. is Professor and Chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. I'm leaving the links to our first two interviews in the description box of this one, and today we're talking about human psychology, culture, human intelligence, human mating, and some other related topics. So, Dr. Enrique, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to everyone. It's great to be with you, Ricardo. So, the first topic I would like to get into, we've already touched on it in our previous conversations, particularly the last one about, about your book, The Weirdest People in the World. But in what ways would you say culture, culture shapes human psychology? Well, I think we're just beginning to figure that out. I mean, we certainly have evidence that human, uh, that uh, culture can influence our perceptions, spatial navigation, mentalizing abilities, thinking styles, reasoning, and, you know, of course, our languages and lots more. Um, I think the non-intuitive is people, there's a tendency to think about brains as a digital computer where there's hardware and software. And psychologists like to think they're studying the hardware, which is taken as fixed. But just the way we, you know, whether we, it's about perceiving different smells, seeing different visual illusions, all of these things have been shown to vary across societies. I mean, our spatial navigating is particularly striking. So in some languages, there's only references to absolute coordinate system, north, south, east, and west. So everyone is really good at, you know, if you say which way is Philadelphia, everybody can point to where Philadelphia is. Um, but, of course, in lots of cities and stuff, people can't do that. And we're probably getting worse at it with GPS. And that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because this gets us into a discussion that many people across different fields, I mean, this is a very interdisciplinary discussion, I guess, that people have about human universals. So at this point, looking across disciplines like anthropology, culture, cultural psychology, cognitive science, and so on, what can we say about human universals? I mean, are there many out there? Do we know exactly which uh, universals are out there specifically? Or what can we tell exactly? Well, I mean, I tend to think there are lots of human universals. And I teach the course on human nature at Harvard, which is a general education requirement. So I'm definitely think I think there's a lot of universals. I think an important distinction, though, as soon as you're talking about universals, is you can have lots of things that are products of culture such that all societies end up having them. So at some point a long time ago, uh, every society had fire. Uh, but yet we still have to learn how to make fire. So is fire a human universal? Yes. Is it? Is it readily spring forth from our biology? No, it has to be something that's learned and uh, seems to be readily learned and, and transmitted in different societies. So um, you need to know what you're talking about. The other confusion that comes up is some scholars tend to think that if learning is involved, is involved, then it's not innate. But that's really not how natural selection builds things. So if natural selection is aiming at a particular phenotype and one mechanism to get it there is to include some learning in the process, then that learning can be part of the developmental processes that produces the mature phenotype. Um, so that's another common confusion. But so like, for example, I have a line of research on, uh, on stat human status. 
So I've argued that humans have prestige and dominance, and I think those are reliably developing features of hum humans, are, you know, in every society. Um, so and there's lots of others. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful here because whenever we find the human universal, we shouldn't immediately assume that it is innate or biological in nature, right? Well, so um, the way you phrase that is a complicated question for me. So I think we should assume everything is biological in nature, okay. but culture is part of our biology. So it's a mm -hmm. question of what processes bring it about. Um, and whether there was, so the, the, the human nature question is, has there been selection on genes that facilitate the emergence of that phenotype? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's probably lot, there's lots of cultural things which are now universal. So all human societies, maybe you could still squint and there are a few that don't, but all human societies use steel tools. Um, and if it's not true now, it'll definitely be true in a hundred years. So steel is a human universal. But it's not, there was never selection for humans to use steel at any point in human evolutionary history. So that's one where there hasn't been selection. Something like language, clearly culturally learned, but there has been some selection on genes to help us uh, with at least spoken language. So t selection has tinkered with our, our voice boxes and our tongues and things like that to help us make words better. Mm -hmm. So in your work, I read about the concept of cognitive phenotypes. Could you tell us what that is about exactly? Yeah, I just coined that as a way of conveying to philosophers that, you know, the way we process information we should think about as a phenotype, which then means that if there are genetic, you know, when you think about a phenotype, you want to think about the things that contribute to the phenotype. And that can include genes, it can include cultural experiences, and then also individual level experiences. So people could have different cognitive phenotypes because they live within the same society but had different experiences growing up. Um, I mean, you get, you get different cognition if you learn a different language or learn to juggle, you know, all of those things can cause us to process information in different ways. Mm -hmm. So in 2010, 13 years ago, you published together with doctors Stephen Heine and Aaron Orenzian your famous paper on weird psychology. And I mean, 13 years later, how do you look at that issue, particularly at how social scientists have responded to your paper? Do you think that today people care more about that particular issue, that there's more cross-cultural research being done? What do you think about it? Yeah, so different fields reacted in different ways. And I think the biggest change has actually occurred in economics. Uh, and I thought, if you'd asked me in 2005 or six, I thought that the leading edge in economics of understanding the role of culture in human behavior would have come from behavioral economics. But behavioral economics seems to have turned down and, and kind of begun to be very inward looking, uh, whereas it was uh, economic history, economic development, and kind of that larger field there that have really begun to gather data in diverse societies and try to incorporate cultural evolutionary ideas and whatnot, led by people like Nathan Nunn, Paolo Giuliano, Alberto Alicina, and others. Mm -hmm. um, more recently, Ben Anke, Anka Becker, people like that. And um, uh, meanwhile, in psychology, right about the time our paper came out, it was immediately followed by the replication crisis in psychology. And I felt like the replication 
took, took all the attention away from the weird people problem because it seemed more severe and it was also easier to address in many ways. Uh, so, but nevertheless, um, psychologists are aware of the problem. Many are trying to, to deal with it. They tend to deal with it by using online platforms, which is at least one tool, but, but shouldn't be the be all and end all of dealing with the problem. Um, so you are seeing you look at the actual numbers of the percentage of psychology subjects, whether it's cognitive science, you know, in the, in the top journal, psychological science or developmental psychology, you're still talking 90% or more of participants are from weird societies. So there's a general interest, but not too much movement in the way that we can quantify. Mm -hmm. So we have to look across different fields and disciplines to really have an accurate understanding of how they've been dealing or responding to the issue, right? It's not, we can just, we can't just say that it's been overall positive or negative or can Well, I think overall it's been positive. So everyone seems more aware of it. There's okay. more concern about it, but it's far from a revolutionary change. It's, it's very much incremental. <laughs> it's decade by decade. We're changing on decade-level timescales. But do you think that that kind of response has anything to do with how people in their particular disciplines approach their own objects of study and perhaps the methodologies they use? Or does it also have something to do with lack of funding, for example, to do cross-cultural research. Yeah, I don't buy, I never buy the funding excuse. The reason is, is that the disciplines are structurally, are structured different, so the incentives are different. So I guess that's my economist explanation. Um, in psychology, you have to crank out a large number of papers as a young scholar in order to be able to get an academic job and then eventually tenure. So you're pressured to use the most easily accessible subjects pools. And unless people really crack down and force you to make generalizations with data from diverse societies, it's just hard to make the time to do it and to make the investments necessary to really properly c collect data in different societies. And what's happened in fields like social psychology is it's so much easier to collect data on MTurk or some of these online platforms and you can get the big samples you need to deal with the replication or the way that they've dealt with the replication crisis. Um, there's just been a big movement to these online platforms and to mostly using Americans because you can crank through those. You don't have to learn any languages, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, related to the replication crisis and I guess also to some extent to the weird problem in psychology and the social sciences more generally, uh, of course, people and researchers care a lot about repl replicability and effect sizes. Do we know what factors might play a role in those uh, things? I mean, do we know which, what they are affected by, for example? Well, uh, I should make an overall point, which um, mm -hmm. I think in the replicability crisis, <clears throat> the mistake that psychologists have made is that they focused on things like sample size and how do you do your statistics. Mm -hmm. But there's a deeper problem that psychologists have that they don't have theories, theories of the kind that predict variation across society. So what factors should we look at? Should we expect to capture variation across societies? And without a theory, you don't know what to look at to figure out what's going to affect the effect size. 
<clears throat> if you think something should be weak in one society and strong in another, you need a theory to guide you. Otherwise, you're just you know randomly picking things. It could be the the air temperature, or it could be the historical the history of using the plow, which is something that actually is important for some things. Um, yeah, so I would say we don't know very much about that, except in cases where we've there's been a theory to test. You know, do kin-based institutions important? Are, are, is Patty Rice agriculture important the way Thomas Talhelm has, has explored it? Things like that. So, yeah, we're pretty much in the dark on the effect size, but the problem is the lack of theory. And the theory also drives you to do the kind of cross-cultural comparative work, because it says you need data from these kinds of places in order to test the theory. Mm -hmm. So I would like to get now into some more of your work in anthropology and also cultural evolutionary theory. So regarding the prestige bias, could you tell us how it works exactly? Because, I mean, people might have this idea that it's just simply about copying or going along with the ideas of people who are of higher status. But, I mean, could it be perhaps more context-dependent and perhaps we tend to copy the ideas of people who, in a particular context, we think that perhaps are more competent or qualified and so perhaps it is from those people that we can obtain the best information or the more useful information? Yeah. <clears throat> so I think that, I mean, I think a useful way to think about this is to think of uh, human cognition is having a suite of cues and also ways of processing information that vary according to who you're paying attention to. So mm -hmm. cues of the model like competence and success and prestige, matching on ethnicity, matching on sex, and all of these things help you hone in on the individuals most likely to possess useful information to you. Now we also have content-based mechanisms. So people think about ethnic groups, different from how they think about food, different from think, how they think about different animal species. And so this affects the way, the kinds of domains you pay attention to. People pay attention more to food and other kinds of things, and also then how you process the information. So it's, the, it's those two things coming together. Now, you know, prestige can play a really important role, but it's also interacting with things like skill and success. So you're going to attend more to someone who is skillful or successful in a domain you care about. So, so we also culturally acquire domains we care about, or, or we may have innate preferences for some domains, and then that will direct you to those individuals. Um, but there are some things where it's hard to know what the domain is, and their prestige, like who other people pay attention to, who they defer to, can be a generally useful way to get some knowledge. So there might be lots of things like, you know, in deciding what, what career to pursue in life, um, you might just look at people who seem to be well thought of and, and widely renowned to think about which careers you like or something like that. And we do see this, these strange biases. So uh, when celebrities express opinions and engage in what I call credibility-enhancing displays, their traits can really spread. So a classic example was the British government tried to get women to get screened for the breast cancer gene, the gene that makes you more likely to get breast cancer. And in 2014, they ran a program for about five months, uh, and they had very little success. And then the actor-director Angelina Jolie wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in which she discussed her own decision to get a double mastectomy. That's a credibility-enhancing display. And her experience with this, and this caused you know, the helplines and the, the clinics to light up with interest from women all around the world. 
And when researchers tried to find out if this caused people to know more about the breast cancer gene and about the decision, people who, who knew about Angelina or didn't, didn't know more or less about the relevant decision. Angelina is not a medical expert. She went to, you know, her education consists of Beverly Hills High plus some night, night courses at um, NYU. And uh, uh, so it looks like a prestige effect. So, so, that, so it, it is relevant for understanding real important things. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly not the case or it doesn't tend to be that people just randomly copy or imitate the behaviors of people who are famous, who are celebrities, who, are, who have good uh, reputations or something like that, right? I mean, it's not uh, random or, or, or just based on those cues alone. Well, so but there there are contexts in which uh, you can it, you can strip out all the other cues, and then you'll mm -hmm. you'll that prestige might make the difference. I mean, mm -hmm. simple casual example would be the use of celebrity endorsements for things. Mm -hmm. So famous Michael Jordan sold Hanes underwear, and it's not, it's not clear what Michael knows about underwear. He <laughs> he knows a lot about basketball and quite a bit about baseball actually, but but not not underwear. So but yet you know. Uh, Haynes thought he was worth paying to, to sell underwear. And Tiger, Tiger Woods sold Buicks. Mm -hmm. So getting into another topic uh, regarding innovation, because the, that's also something that people in cultural evolutionary theory study. Do we have a good understanding of what drives innovation? What are the main factors that play a role there? Yeah, I mean, I think we're it's we're getting a better uh, view. Um, I mean, the position that I've been pursuing for a while now is that to really understand the innovativeness of a population, you need to understand the the relevance of the size of the population, the interconnectedness among the people in the population, the flow of ideas among the people, uh, and then the cognitive diversity available in the population. So when you really dig down and you look at innovations, most innovations are recombinations of different ideas. And often these different ideas are for the first time when humans interact. Now that could it be some people, two people having a conversation in a coffee shop, or it could be you know, someone reading a book written by somebody else and then they encounter the idea that way. But, um, and so there's now there's a growing body of evidence showing a, a role for, for all of these. Um, I mean, in particular, we've been studying the U.S. patent database from about 1840 to 1950. And the size of a county's population has a big effect on its patents per capita. Note the per capita. So you get more patents per person. It's as if each person gets smarter when they're in a larger, denser population. Right. But then we can also show that the cognitive diversity of the population makes an independent contribution over and above the population size. And, for example, is something like causal understanding related to, for example, technology development a key ingredient of our cultural evolution? Is it very important for us to have a, a causal understanding of how thing, things work for us to be culturally successful or not necessarily? Well, I think the, I mean, my answer to this, of course, there's a big debate about it, but my answer to this is that uh, not necessarily. Um, of course, people do have causal models of the world, and the model, causal models can help technological advancement. But there's been lots of 
cultural products, let's say, that are uh, sophisticated and help people adapt to diverse environments in which the individual themselves either have the wrong theory about how it works or they have no particular theory and they're not, they don't even know that the thing they're doing does anything in, in that kind of sense. Moreover, <clears throat> I mean, I've been studying the history of technology now for a while. And what's striking to me is how much of our scientific insight is generated by studying things we've already built. So our understanding of thermodynamics is greatly advanced by creating steam engines. Oftentimes we have medicines that we can show in trials are effective, but then we have to back out. Well, why the heck does this actually do anything useful? And then you begin doing the microbiology and figuring out the mechanisms that make it work. So causal understanding is much a product of our technological and, and you know, know-how uh, evolution as it is a cause of it. So in that case, the kinds of causal understanding that we have in science uh, would also be a product of uh, science as a cultural institution? Yeah. So something I'm really interested in now is thinking about science as a, uh, you know, a knowledge generating institution. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, something like mathematical realism, the idea that we can instantiate the laws of the universe in mathematical symbols is something that was sort of digested into um, science and turns out to be really useful. Um, some societies, other societies in Eurasia had it, but they didn't, for example, also have the notion of experiments, treatment and control, which Europeans, as best I can tell, got it from Islamic societies. Uh, you know, around about, you know, there's this big flourishing of, of Islamic society, science around 900,000. And one of the things that's developed by someone named Avicenna is the notion of experiments with treatment and control. So Europeans get that. But then they get mathematical realism from somebody somewhere else, and they get analytic geometry and algebra from people. people. And they're putting all these elements together, uh, and eventually we think of it as science. I mean, one of the keys to science, and I really like uh, this book by a philosopher named Strebens, in which he argues that um, the key is that uh, we put the empirical world first. The empirical world dictates what's true, and, and we don't care whether the, the, the ancient sages agree with it or that it agrees with the most prestigious member of the field, at least when we're having discourse. Of course, humans, being humans, are always going to be affected by the opinions of a prestigious individual. But when I write a paper, I can't cite that as a source of evidence, so I have to make the case purely on empirical grounds. Um, I also think there's a lot to be said for the scientific community, right? The notion of ongoing peer judgment and the, the fact that you can uh, make your name by disagreeing with the, with the current view. Mm -hmm. And what is cumulative culture? Because that's also something that people in cultural evolutionary theory uh, explore and debate a lot. What does it mean exactly for culture to be cumulative? And at what point exactly can we talk about cumulative culture and perhaps distinguish that kind of culture from the culture of, let's say, other animal species that might not be cumulative? Yeah, I mean, the classic definition of cumulative culture is such that you can aggregate cultural information sufficiently over enough time so that it produces products, so think of a tool, that no single individual could figure out in their lifetime. Um, now that's a, that's a formal definition which gets us to a certain place. You could imagine uh, a continuum though that goes from animals that just figure out one thing and almost every group in the 
group could figure it out on their own, but it's easier to socially learn it. So most of the time they socially learn it, but they could figure it out. Um, to things where you aggregate a whole bunch of things, say 10 things. And in practice, every animal, every animal in a group could figure out each of those, but it would take too long to figure out all 10 of them yourself. And so you're learning all those and you're being benefited by the social learning. It's not true that uh, every individual can't figure it out, but every individual can't figure out every single one in their lifetimes. And then eventually you get to this other place. So there's really a kind of nice continuum about it. And, you know, there's these weird debates that go on about the meaning of cumulative cultural evolution. I, I think we pretty much understand it. It's just a matter of coming to agreement on what to label various things. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a, a good debate to be had about how much of this is in other species. So um, I haven't seen good evidence that other species have um, uh, cumulative cultural evolution of the, of the kind that no individual animal could figure it out in their lifetime. Uh, I mean, Claudio Tenney has done some nice work, although, you know, in the experiment, you can't give the animal its entire lifetime to figure it out because that takes awfully long to do. Uh, but if you can show they can figure it out in a shorter period of time, you kind of you're at least able to make the argument uh, in a particular direction. Um, but there could be animals, lots of animals that are on the road to varying degrees along that continuum I just described. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us now about the collective brain hypothesis? Because I guess that we could look at human intelligence and perhaps maybe the intelligence of other species, I guess, through an, uh, I mean, looking at it on an individual level and stuff like, for example, IQ and the work done by behavioral geneticists and stuff like that. But uh, in what way, what is collective, uh, the collective brain hypothesis and perhaps in what ways does it differ from the way we commonly think about intelligence, at least in Western societies? Right. So the collective brain kind of begins with the description that I gave you before, where most, uh, most things that we would call cumulative cultural evolution or innovation are recombinations that come about, that can be enhanced by, you're more likely to get a recombination. If you have a large population, lots of interconnectedness among the minds, and lots of cognitive diversity to fuel the recombinations. So that gives rise to the collective brain, and it means that the products, the innovation, can't be explained by the brains of the individuals. It depends on all the sort of sociality that goes on and the, the demographics of the population. Um, so that's important there. Another layer deeper into this is to recognize that the brains are the, the let's put aside genetic evolution, we're just talking about cultural evolution. The brains of the individuals in the population are shaped and potentially honed by the products of the, the, the innovations, the cumulative products of it. And this could be things like left versus right, numbering systems, writing systems, rich, category, rich categorization, could be things like the mental abacus where you can make extraordinary calculations uh, by, you know, kind of fixing in a mental abacus in your head and figuring out mentally sliding beads around. Um, so there's all kinds of things in that make people better able to come up with new ideas. It could be things like recognizing wheels, levers, and pulleys, which, you know, are, began as instantiations in physical products, but then are extracted and, you know, you can use a wheel to roll a cart. Oh, well, maybe I can use it for pottery. Maybe I can use it as a gear. Maybe I can use it as a windmill. And so you just begin kind of reapplying that same, that same trick. 
Um, so in that sense, we get smarter, or we, at least we can in principle get smarter through the products of cumulative cultural evolution. Most societies uh, over human, ever, human evolutionary history probably counted one, two, maybe three, and then many. And then, of course, but we have these, these systems where we count without bound. So do you think that that would reframe in any way uh, the way we think about IQ, for example? Yeah. Well, I mean, in a, I mean, in a, in a related but slightly separate uh, line of work, Michael Muthu Krishna and I have argued that we should think of IQ as the, a suite of cognitive abilities that are honed by cultural evolution for navigating and succeeding in um, the societies that emerged in the 20th century, say. So societies where you need certain sets of cognitive skills. So like think of like skills needed by uh, white collar employees or business managers or businessmen or uh, engineers or any of those things. So the mistake is to think that, that somehow the IQ test taps into basic raw human cognitive abilities. And in, in some ways, I mean, this is, I'm trying to be a little pushy and perverse here, but I think that IQ is like golf. Um, you know, imagine using golf as a measure of, of people's skill. You would find it correlates with success, it correlates with money. Um, so golf skill would correlate with all those things. But it's just this culturally evolved skill, which if you do it enough, you get good at it, and, and then you're more skilled at golf. Um, so uh, now to pursue this, uh, some colleagues and I, Helen Davis, who's an anthropologist from Arizona State, and Yvonne Krupan, uh, who is a, a developmental psychologist now at the London School of Economics, uh, along with Michael, we've been conducting research in Namibia and uh, Angola and looking at the effects of education on IQ. And what you show is that the normal maturation based on the, the standard IQ tests or the Ravens matrices, different ways to measure IQ, you don't see the increase in IQ that you would normally see and it's been documented in industrialized societies uh, if people don't go to school, it stays flat. So the normal maturational increase in IQ that you see in kids is a complete interaction with modern uh, formal educational institutions. And when you zero in on that, you can see things like the limit of memory. So, so one of the 10 subtests in the IQ is memory. And the limit in memory seems to be about four. And if you don't have any schooling, you, you never exceed four. And you know, you might make a mistake a couple times. So some people get below four. If you go to school, you might use a kind of trick like mental rehearsal. So someone tells you a list of numbers and you use a verbal loop and the, and, and the words for numbers, which many languages don't have as a way of keeping that in memory so you can spit it back to the, to the person testing you. So those are the only people who get over four. So basically you learn a trick, uh, how to repeat numbers when you get, someone gives you a list of numbers and so you have a higher IQ. Um, so I mean, so that gives you some sense of uh, what it's doing. It's, it's, you're learning from school tricks, techniques, and ways of getting higher IQ scores essentially. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to, for example, the Flynn effect and the explanation for it that James Flynn had that for because of us being exposed to more formal schooling and, for example, on TV to more complex plots in TV series and movies and so on, uh, that is a reasonable explanation for us getting smarter over time yeah. or not. Yeah, and the only thing that I think, the, the take that Michael and I would want to add to that is that there's cultural evolution going on 
for figuring out ways to jack up those cognitive abilities because those are the cognitive abilities that lead to success and prestige in certain societies. And they don't lead to success and prestige in other societies. So going to school is a good way to hunter if you're an Ache. Uh, so these are for a particular society. And, uh, and so, so something like color terms, not directly related to high Q, but the, the data is good that the age at which kids know their colors in America has been going down for 50 years. And that's because there's all these picture books that some families will sit down and the kids will learn the colors as you read the picture book to them, the blue cow, the pink horse. And so soon the kids know their colors. And it's the same thing with numbers and reading and even how you make an argument. You know, all those kinds of things are sort of trained in the household and trained in the community and then eventually trained in school. Mm -hmm. So uh, in 2022, I did an interview with Dr. Ryutaro Uchiyama about the cultural evolution of genetic heritability. Back then, we talked mostly about uh, what we're talking about now, IQ and intelligence. But can culture influence in that regard also something like assortative mating, for example? Right, right. So let me just, uh, for the listener, to give mm -hmm. them a little bit of background. So okay. uh, I think there's still a tendency for people to think of genetic heritability as a feature of the genome. Yeah. So uh, Uchiyama and colleagues, including Michael Muthu Krishna, wrote this fantastic paper, which everyone should read, in Behavioral and Brain Sciences. And in that paper, they make the point that really uh, heritability varies across populations and it can evolve culturally. So the easiest way to see this is that what heritability is, that you hear so much talk about whether personality and IQ is heritable, it's the additive genetic variation divided by the total phenotypic variation. And what happens is culture can mess around with the denominator and you know, make that smaller. So if all richer people have um, read to their kids, then, and you get an increase in the heritability of IQ, if poor lower heritability of IQ, which is in fact what you find in the United States. Um, so they make this point beautifully in lots of A's, they do some simulations. Uh, and then a colleague and I, uh, uh, TC, TC Jen and myself wrote, wrote a kind of thought piece on this, uh, thinking about how cultural evolution might mess around with the numerator. And um, one interesting take there is that if there are cultural institutions that increase the amount of assortative mating, then uh, you could get changes in the variation in genetic traits. So lots of traits are affected by genes, uh, but they're affected by lots of genes. And that's been one of the findings of, of uh, behavioral genetics is how much traits are affected by hundreds, maybe thousands of different small effects from different genes. Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, you, in, in some former era, you just tended to, to marry and have kids with someone from your neighborhood, that's going to give you something that's closer to random mating than if you go to work as an engineer, you meet another fellow engineer, and then you make baby engineers, right? Because there's a selection process in becoming an engineer that's going to involve lots of different genes. And then you're going to meet someone else who went through that selective filter. And then your kids are going to have the recombination of two selective filters, right? So you're going to get the spreading out of, any, of traits for certain kinds of occupational specializations, for example. This may be exaggerated by things like online dating, uh, where people who have similar interests can get together. Um, uh, yeah, so 
anyway, so 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 I think we think both the entry of women into the labor market, which began in the U.S. in the early 1970s, and then eventually uh, online dating, where people can you know search in pools of a thousand for people they match on, and if depressed people tend to be attracted to other depressed people, then you're going to get even more depressed kids, right? So mm -hmm. you know, you know all, same thing with autism. All these things can can operate like this, assuming like attracts like. Uh, anyway, so so I think it's something that deserves further research. Mm -hmm. And since we're touching on human mating here, what do we know about human mating systems from an anthropological perspective? Because I hear every different kind of take out there and different readings of the same kinds of literature and evidence. I mean, can we really say that humans have any preferred mating system like monogamy, polygyny, polyandry, or something like that? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So I think what we, well, we can say the culture is very powerful and it can build all kinds of different systems. Mm -hmm. uh, if we just look at the raw data from uh, the biggest anthropological database we have, we see that about 85% of human societies allow elite and high status men to take additional wives. Mm -hmm. This is true of your smallest scale hunter-gatherer societies, although the level of polygyny there is much less than you find in the societies where there's a bigger dispersion of wealth uh, among males. So we can say that. Uh, monogamy of the normative kind that Western societies are familiar with is actually pretty rare. So you can dig into that 15%, which you might say, well, that's all the monogamous societies. But a good chunk of those societies are um, situations in which there isn't much difference among the males. So if you, if you just make a female choice model, the females are going to distribute themselves one per male, and the society is going to look monogamous because no male stands out. Uh, and then the other ones are societies that are Western in the sense of being Christian and having Christian normative monogamy imposed upon them. So, uh, yeah, that pretty much covers the monogamy. I mean, there's a couple of oddities in there. In the past, various ancient societies have imposed monogamy on the lower classes. So the elites who made the rule opposed monogamy on the non-elites. But yeah, So those are Egypt, Babylon, places like that. Now, um, a lot of people say hunter-gatherers are monogamous. That's totally false. So there's no evidence to support that. Um, they often end up, the majority of pairings are one female, one male. But um, they're still the, the best hunters, the best shamans, the best warriors often get additional wives in those cases. So. And is there, there uh, no, societies. yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. One, there, there are a couple of societies that um, do things to suppress pair bonds. So we're talking about human nature. I think humans are like gorillas in the sense that we have a pair bonding psychology. Uh, but interestingly, culture in some of these societies uh, near Tibet and China um, seem to have what they call furtive mating. So basically, there's no marriage traditionally, and men will come over for visits. Um, they have no particular obligations to any offspring that are produced. The brother takes the role of the father, um, and there's matrilineal households. So now there is like it looks like pair bonds try to like secretly crop up. So there will be males and females. That, you know, it's not been it's not a bonobo situation. So there will be males and females that will continue uh, visiting for for their their lives. So there's at least some serial monogamy occurring, or not. Well, I've never seen it quantified. Um, we don't really know. The, the women in these cases could have multiple male, male partners. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but they at least have a pair bond with one of them. So that's one of the things that I think people get confused about. Pair bonding does not mean monogamy. Gorillas are pair bonders, but they have multiple, male gorillas have multiple female pair bonds. Mm -hmm. It's just the relationship between the two. So to understand that, imagine you could have a group marriage where everybody is pair bonded with everybody of all possible combinations. But when you, even when humans do interesting things like uh, combinations of polyandry and polygyny, it's still a series of pair-bonded relationships. There's no like group stuff, at least at the institutional society. Mm -hmm. uh, related to polygyny, what is its relationship to uh, inequality? Does it necessarily lead to unequal societies or could it be the other way around? For example, how does it work exactly? Well, um, I think that, I mean, it looks from, I mean, I'm trying to think of a, a, an analysis that really nails it. Let's just say that the standard view would be that as societies get more unequal, that creates more opportunity for polygyny. So the simplest case to look at would be to do what, look at what power forgets, the more godlike they get, the bigger the harems, right? right. Uh, and now, so that's why Western society is strange because you have these massive wealth differences between the richest and the poorest person, but you know, the billionaires can only have one spouse at a time legally and normatively um, as this, the same as the, the, you know, the poorest person in society. Mm -hmm. So I would like to get now a little bit into your I don't, work. You just say, you know, just to, yeah. so you, kind of the way you asked your question was, you know, does polygyny have to lead to um, inequality? Inequality. I don't think it has to, uh, but it is in some sense inequality itself, right? It's, it's sort of the most evolutionarily important form of inequality. If there's some group of males that are getting a disproportionate share of the matings and marriages and, and offspring, and another group of males who aren't getting anything, um, that's inequality, right? Now, it could be that something is happening, maybe warfare, that's killing off a bunch of males. And so you have a, a low share, you know, you don't have a pool of low status unmarried men because something has taken them out of the population. Um, in principle, all the males would be polygynous, but there wouldn't be any pool of low status males and there wouldn't be any inequality, or in principle. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yes, of course. I mean, of course, when we talk about inequality, most of the time we mean economic inequality, but in this case it would be sexual inequality, even if it's not necessarily accompanied by economic inequality, right? Yeah, uh, well, yes. Um, but it's in traditionally over human history, and I'll get to the contemporary world now, which is probably still true, um, is that what drives inequality is the fact that there are economic material differences mm -hmm. between us. Uh, and either the males use that power to accomplish this or female choice can drive it. And if you're, I often get pushback and skepticism on female choice, but the new data source for this is online dating, where a very small fraction of males get a massive amount of female interest and a big pool of males get so, no female interest at all. Um, so, that, you know, that's just, and that's all female choice driven, right? You can't tell some other story. They're swiping one way and swiping another way, right? So. Yeah. So getting into religion now, uh, when it comes to big gods, looking at the best evidence we have at the moment, what can we really say about this topic? I mean, is it that big gods preceded 
the, the increase in social complexity? Was it the other way around? What can we tell exactly at this point? Yeah, well, so I take from your question that you think that's an important issue, or at least somebody has convinced you that that's an important issue. I think from a theoretical point of view, that's totally an unimportant issue. And the reason is, is, I mean, I got into this because of my interest in the way cultural group selection, competition among groups might have shaped religion. Mm -hmm. But from that point of view, it doesn't matter whether a society got complex and then spread big gods and that allowed it to stay complex longer or whether it invented big gods and then got complex. The key is the long-term evolutionary outcomes um, and the particular order doesn't actually matter that much because it's not, nobody thinks that big gods are the only game in town that increases social complexity. There's a whole bunch of things that can contribute to greater social complexity. One of which are these big powerful moralizing gods that are in Zion and Ted Slingerland and others that I've written about. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to studying cross-culturally religious belief, do you think that we should be careful about the ways we make assumptions about how people in other cultures think about uh, human minds or the minds of other people? I mean, is it the case that perhaps we might be making too many assumptions there and that would lead down the line to some uh, consequences as to how religion or religious belief expresses itself in other non-weird cultures, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons when we've tried to do these cross-cultural projects, we don't, you know, collect data online or do MTurk or something. We assemble a team of field workers with long years of experience in their different field sites and send them to collect a detailed religious interviews in these different places. And then, you know, and then criticize the interviews to ask, you know, what, what were we missing? Does this really fit the local uh, religious system and whatnot? I mean, a typical sort of Protestant bias in a lot of uh, assumptions about religion is that people are worried about God's mental states, right? So Protestantism is famously about faith, right? A lot of other religions, they don't spend a lot of time hopping around about faith. Uh, you know, it's more about following the ritual practices. Uh, people may spend less time trying to figure out what God's mental states are uh, and more time f- uh, sticking to particular subscri- uh, prescriptions or following certain ritual practices. Um, yeah. So. And, and I guess that uh, when it comes to thinking about the possible mental states of gods, that's perhaps even... Uh, something that, for example, people who are part of the clergy or religious institutions do even more so than perhaps uh, just common religious followers or... Yeah, I mean, one of the other things you got to watch out for when you're studying religion is what some have called uh, uh, theological correctness. So there's often the views of what the religion says or is about that the religious leaders of the society the theologians, if they have them, or other religious leaders, will say that it's about. And then we find a big disconnect sometimes between that and what happens if you actually talk to the, the rank and file about what they what they believe. And so I remember people who study Buddhism would always tell me that Buddhists don't have gods. And then we'd talk to actual Buddhists, and you know they're loaded, they're loaded up with gods, right? So, <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, this is a question that is very related again to your book, The Weirdest People in the World. But when it comes to studying psychology historically, that is looking back in time and trying to study the psychology of people who are no longer here with us. So what are the best, mo most rigorous methods to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think we're really at a, it's a kind of a fun time for this because, you know, it's the Wild West. It's the very beginning. We're trying to devise ways, increasingly powerful computers and new techniques. Um, I mean, the most promising method that I've seen is one developed by my postdoc, Mohammed Atari. And rather than using the usual word bag method where you get a collection of words that, you know, signal, for example, tightness or looseness, um, which is perfectly sensible thing to do. We use word bags too. But this other method will take a questionnaire that psychologists say mainstream social psychologists developed to measure something like individualism. And it creates a vector space based on the positions of words and the kind of patterns of where words are in relation to each other. So you have this multi-dimensional representation of the questionnaire. And then you ask whether pieces of text are more or less close to this multi-dimensional representation. And that gives you a measure of individualism. Uh, so it has nice face validity in that you built the matrix from what the psychologists came up with to measure their construct, and they, they did all the work they did to validate that and whatnot. Uh, and then you just compare it to these different texts. And then you can compare that, you know, so what we're doing is comparing that to the word bag method and comparing that to the things we think it should predict uh, with the hope of actually kind of triangulating in on something. Mm -hmm. So there's one last topic that I would like to ask you about today. And since we've been talking a lot about cross-cultural research and how important it is for people to keep in mind uh, that uh, we shouldn't assume that uh, the psychology of people who live in different cultures work exactly the same as ours in weird societies. So when it comes to studying human cognition and behavior, do you think that there might be a risk that we are also relying too much on English speakers? I mean, can language also have an important effect here? Language and the linguistic habits of, in this case, English speakers? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I... Damien Blasi and some other colleagues and I recently did a paper on this in Trends in Cognitive Science. And I mean, so much of cognitive science is dominated by work in English. It's really striking. And, you know, there's nothing kind of, English is not the median language. In fact, it's probably quite different from the languages that humans spoke over human evolutionary history. I mean, it has a massive vocabulary and a relatively simplified grammar. Probably the languages of small scale societies used a more more logically complex grammar, um, large number of words, large number of sounds relative to lots of languages. Anyway, so it's, it's unusual in a bunch of ways. And it, just to give you one example of a kind of bias that it produces mm -hmm. is so cognitive psychologists studying kids and, and uh, in speaking English have argued that, you know, one of the first things kids begin to distinguish is color and shape. So this is somehow fundamental way humans understand the world color and shape. It turns out that English, unbeknownst to most of us, uh, has a color shape bias, that it distinguishes lots of things in the way and the words it uses based on color and shape that you don't see in other languages. 
So kids who learn language implicitly get a color shape bias a, through the process of learning English. And then cognitive psychologists see it and go, oh, it's a human nature. Um, so that's an example of the kind of problem you can run into. Plus, there's a growing body of evidence suggesting that um, language can affect thought. Um, so, of course, you know, English makes a bunch of distinctions that other languages don't make and vice versa. That, that could be shaping um, the results of cognitive science. And so my last question then is, uh, how do you think we can tackle this problem? Is it simply a matter of studying people from a wider range of uh, languages and linguistic habits, let's put it that way perhaps, or should we also perhaps uh, care, uh, care about trying to have a more diverse uh, linguistic, linguistic community within uh, science itself? I mean, having pick more languages or do work in more languages than just English or are natives, let's say, of other languages? Areas we should focus on for sure. I mean, a lot of this is just a matter of will um, in the sense that researchers now could switch to doing the same kinds of things they do, build collaborative ties or whatever with people in places where they speak very different languages. Again, uh, this would help by having a lot of good theory. So how do we expect different languages to affect cognition? Then you would know who to talk to to find out about that. And if researchers themselves were fluent in or grew up speaking more, greater diversity of languages, um, that, would, that would give them intuitions that could help guide them as well as, as relying on a formal theory could lead to the development of a theory or something like that. Yeah, so, it, and you know, there are, there's a growing body of textual sources, for example, if you need texts in other languages, so more work should be done to, uh, to grow those bodies of texts. In, in our lab, you know, we've, we're expanding from Latin and English into uh, ancient Chinese and Farsi, which also has a, uh, a long history where it's, it's a similar language over time. Uh, but there's, there's lots of other rich areas. And just gathering um, data from diverse societies, non-written languages, is, is of course essential. And that's part, part of the weird people problem. So you need to separate the sort of cultural effects that are not related to language to the language itself. But that's just a matter of finding the right natural experiment where culturally very different people uh, speak the same language or, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. But definitely it helps to have people from different uh, cultural backgrounds uh, within the scientific community, right? Of course, yes. Uh, so that's absolutely true for lots of reasons. Um, and it also fits in with the collective brain that we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. The greater cognitive diversity leads to more rapid innovation. Right. <laughs> so, Dr. Enric, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the Internet? Uh, yeah. So um, if you Google Joseph Henrik, you'll find me. I'm at Harvard University. And uh, we have both a laboratory website and a personal sort of professional website where you can find all of our papers and writings and podcast appearances. Okay, great. So apart from that, I'm also leaving links to our first two interviews in the description box of this one. And thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot, Ricardo. Great to be with you. Personal sort of professional website where you can find all of our papers and writings and podcast appearances.
Okay, great. So apart from that, I'm also leaving links to our first two interviews in the description box of this one. And thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot, Ricardo. Great to be with you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please do not forget to like it, share, comment, and subscribe. And if you like more generally what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You, get, you have all of the links in the description of this interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perergo Larsen, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Triago Dunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Librand, John Linear, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tam Amal, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraúzo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Stasevsky, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pans Cortez, Lalitska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Giorgio Stéphanos, Chris Williamson, Peter Olozen, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amory Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilly Jr., Holt Erickbun, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassis, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Manuel Oliveira, Kimberly Johnson, and Benjamin Galbart. A special thanks to my producers, these are Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.